Welcome to Habitual Excellence, presented by Value Capture. This podcast in our firm is all about helping you and your organization achieve habitual excellence via one unifying focus, one value-based structure, and one performance system. In other words, it's about helping you capture dramatically more value through achieving perfect care and perfect safety for patients and staff. To learn more about Value Capture and our services, visit www.valuecapturellc.com. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to today's webinar. It's titled Using Rapid Cycle Improvement to Tackle Turnover. And it's going to be presented by two leaders from Duke Home Care and Hospice. They are Janet Proctor Burgess and Cooper Linton. And we're also going to be joined during the Q&A session by Mike Radke, who's part of our team here at Value Capture, who has worked with uh, the people there at Duke Home Care and Hospice. I'm your host, Mark Raven, with Value Capture. I'm really happy that you all have joined us today, and I'm going to play the role of host and moderator. So let me introduce our two presenters, as I thank them for being here to share their great story today. I'm going to read just parts of their bios, because they have done a lot of interesting things in uh, in their careers and backgrounds. But um, Janet Burgess, our first presenter, is the Director of Patient Care Services. Um, she's the Director for the Home Health Program at Duke Home Care and Hospice. She's been a registered nurse for over 33 years, with 28 of those years as a leader in home and community-based care. Janet holds a BS degree in nursing, has completed graduate classes in business administration. She has experience in healthcare operations, financial planning, budgeting, project planning, and is certified in executive nursing practice through the American Organization for Nursing Leadership. And she enjoys traveling and spending time on the beach. So maybe you'll get the time, some time to do that um, this winter. And we are also joined today by Cooper Linton. He is the Associate Vice President of Duke Home Care and Hospice. Cooper has worked in the healthcare industry for over 20 years with a passionate focus on home and community-based care. His professional background includes strategic planning, healthcare operations, certificate of need, marketing, business development, and healthcare construction. Cooper also co-hosts a podcast called The Edge of Aging around healthcare and aging issues, so we encourage you to check that out. And Cooper holds a master's in healthcare administration and a master's in business administration from the University of Alabama at Birmingham, where he also completed his graduate certificate. And uh, Cooper describes himself as an avid outdoorsman of the non-beach locale variety, correct? <laughs> correct. <laughs> Absolutely. And so before I hand it over to them, I just want to mention real quickly, if you could advance the slide. Um, the session today here is hosted uh, and presented to you by Value Capture. If um, you are new to Value Capture, we are an advisory firm. We serve as trusted advisors to healthcare leaders who seek to improve physical and psychological safety in their organizations while driving performance results. We would invite you to learn more about us at valuecapturellc.com. There are links and recordings of other past webinars and free eBooks and other material that we hope you will check out and enjoy. Um, So with that, I will turn it over to Cooper and or Janet. All right. Thank you, Mark. Um, I've got good news for everybody. You're going to get to hear from Janet last. So that is truly the saving the best for last. Uh, We will jump right into this. And I wanted to start with a picture of embracing the ugly facts. Uh, You know, I'm a big fan of the Stockdale paradox where it 
You must embrace the harshness of your reality while maintaining an absolute faith and hope in your ability to improve it. But you've got to do them both at the same time. Otherwise, we we don't really get honest about our problems. So I want to share with you, this was our RN turnover in home health. It's the green, ugly column on the left. 75% RN turnover in home health. That is an absolutely insustainable number. Not surprising to anyone. If you're not in home health, you may be unaware that the turnover tends to be materially higher in home-based care than it is in other programs, but it's not 75%. But we often will see numbers in the industry ranging from the upper 40s, 50s, even into the low 60s as percentages of turnover. If you couple that with the reality that projections for home-based care right now are suggesting we're going to be looking at a 30% growth rate over the coming years, the idea of having a 75% or even a 50 or 40% turnover rate is absolutely impossible to maintain. It's not something we are going to be able to fulfill the needs of patients while we're turning over that degree of staff. We're going to talk a little bit more in a moment about some of the costs associated with that turnover, but I wanted to start with a, just a, a pictorial understanding of our problem. Now, one of the reasons we're having this conversation today is because it's connected to value capture. Mike Radke, who will be joining us for the Q&A, was the coach for Duke Home Care Hospice and Home Infusion uh, and still remains a, a close friend and coach to the organization at times uh, and to me, as we all need someone to help tune us up. But we had not been part of a lean journey. Duke Home Care, Hospice and Home Infusion, those three business units, which we'll unpack in a little bit, had not been on a lean journey early, and it wasn't until just a few years ago that we started down this path. The idea has been that lean really couldn't be done in home-based care, and there's incredibly little penetration of lean principles in home-based care because of the idea that when you have a dispersed workforce, this concept sometimes known as lone workers, that because those people are so separate from one another, that you can't have a shared learning model in the way that lean encourages. Well, we have people and we have processes, so that means lean works. We just have to find a way to make it work and we need to adapt it to the home-based environment. It's also important to understand that we have a very heterogeneous set of care settings. Uh, our census today across the three programs is north of 2,100 patients today and they are all in very different individualized settings of care. There's not a standard requirement for the setting of care. There's no environmental services. The majority of these settings of care are not ADA compliant, meaning that they're challenging for, to deliver patient care. It means our staff walk into highly variable conditions. And frankly, there are some significant staff safety issues, which are perpetually present in home-based care. Uh, some of you may have seen an article this past week out of Washington State where a home health nurse was tragically killed during an admission visit. Uh, those stories resonate in our industry because we recognize the variability and, frankly, dangerous elements of some of the work. <clears throat> in my mind, these are not barriers to why we need to have lean. They're motivations for why we need lean. 
because we have all these other variables, creating standard work becomes all the more critical because we have non-standard settings of care. There's another element of home-based care, and that's where we become the guest in someone's house, where we quit asking people to come to our, <clears throat> come to our healthcare system and sit in our waiting room. We instead ask permission to sit in their living room, and that's a very different situation. As I touched on, there's no security staff, but there's also not a call bell where you can ask for help down the hall. I'm going to do a, we're going to be quick on this slide, but there are three business lines for us. One is home health. That's the one that Janet so ably operates, providing nursing therapy, social work, aid, and sometimes some other services. We have hospice, both in-home hospice, as well as we operate a freestanding hospice facility, and we do in-hospital care as well. We also operate a full home infusion program covering three states. We have pharmacists, drug compounding, distribution warehouse. We, we make our own drug here, and we then handle the infusion of it. Our function is not only to deliver care to over 2,000 patients every day, but to act as a pressure relief valve for the health system as we look at how to decompress or sometimes called decant patients out of the hospitals and move them into a lower acuity setting of care. I want to touch briefly on the timeline of lean because we cannot ignore COVID. Uh, the good news is we're not all wearing masks. We're on these calls and we're not isolated. So things have changed a bit in the lean world, but we had only begun our lean journey about six months before COVID began to happen. And we began our lean journey utilizing the tiered huddle system, which you'll see more about from Janet, and the visual management system, which is incorporated into our tiered huddles training. Um, our leaders had gone through some training and we had begun to create leader standard work to the, where there was greater consistency across leadership management, our assistant managers, our directors, and how we structured work. And it provides a structure. The lean began to not only help us understand our day-to-day -day work, but it gave us a structure for us to have nimbleness during COVID, to escalate concerns and to be able to see, share, see, solve, and share quickly the issues that emerged sometimes many times a day out of COVID. And I'm sure most of you can identify with that. Uh, and as what we what we found during COVID is that we would fix a process and then refix the process, and there was a new piece of information, and we re-re-re-re-tiered, retooled everything. The bottom right-hand picture is very simply a picture of two of our infusion nurses who were not given access to a facility, but a patient needed to be infused. That's literally an ultrasound being done on a patient's arm through the window because they wouldn't allow our staff in the building. We started an infusion and were able to treat that patient successfully without ever physically entering the building except for gloved hands and masked faces. So this nursing turnover that we talked about earlier has some pretty ugly outcomes. And I want to start with the fact that people say, well, our problem is nursing turnover. No, our problem was not nursing turnover. We had lots of underlying problems, the symptom of which, one of the symptoms of which, was nursing turnover. We need to understand its true cost. So if you look at the number of patients that we were turning down every year, we were turning down 2,500 patients a year. And we're still turning down more than we want because we're 
getting more and more demand for our care. But at the time, that turnover was so limiting our staffing capacity that 2,500 patients a year were being turned away. Now, one thing we do know is that our clinical outcomes were higher than our competitors in the market, meaning all of those patients were being relegated to a lower level of care and most likely a lower quality outcome. So these were not simply financial impacts, though there were clearly financial impacts of turning 2,500 patients a year away. There were clinical harm impacts on these patients because they weren't getting the same level of care that they would have gotten had they been treated in Janet's program or one of the other programs. I call this the hidden P&L impact. The clinical harm isn't captured in the hidden P&L, but there are two areas that that turning down 2,500 patients, what did that really turn into? Well, if you look at the cost of of the turnover associated with that 75%, we had $4.5 million of direct expense related to turnover of those nurses. $4.5 million. There was another $17.5 million of opportunity cost associated with these patients. Now, I know when I blend it down below and say, okay, that's $22 million, the financial wonks in the room are going, well, you combined revenue and expenses for impact. I did. This is, we're not doing a presentation on accounting, but we are talking about the financial impacts and the point of if it was 12 million instead of 22 million, would it be any less compelling? The point is this is massive. If at the end of every year, we got an invoice for $10 million or $20 million associated with turnover, we would focus on this as if it was the biggest thing in our world. And yet, because so many of these expenses are hidden and don't show up as a line item in our P&L, they get glossed over. They don't get the full attention. Now, as bad as that is, I'd like to share with you that the impact of our turnover was actually far worse than the financial impact. I lead with that 22 million because it's jarring. But I would make, I think, a pretty compelling argument that the other impacts, not the least of which are the reference to clinical harms, are even more compelling than the money is. On top of that, we're in risk-based payer relationships, and we lost control of all those attributed lives because we didn't get to admit those 2,500 patients that I referenced on the earlier slide. Those, slide, those patients went outside of our system. We didn't have control on them, and we have responsibility and risk-based payer relationships for their care. We also know that because those patients were relegated to providers that have higher use of, of emergency departments' utilization, that those patients ended up in our EDs at a higher rate, and so there was a negative impact on our hospitals. Because we couldn't accept those patients out and move them out of the hospitals more quickly, we ended up, ended up increasing the acuity or acute length of stay for the patients in our hospitals, two of those hospitals in particular. And we also lost the backfill revenue as a system, which I didn't even count that in the $22 million. Now, 75% turnover then means that the other remaining staff are overburdened and are more likely to leave because they're dissatisfied and they begin to lose engagement with us as an organization. 
that degree of turnover further complicates trying to build a positive work culture. We had to do something. This also results in lower quality metrics when people are not as engaged. And then clearly, if you're in value-based purchasing agreements, lower outcomes hurt us financially. Again, the hidden P&L that impacts the way we deliver care, and frankly, should be an incredible compelling driver for why we have to institute change. And this drives us into lean principles. This is the part that gets good because I'll turn it over to Janet Burgess. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Um, well, my name is Janet Burgess, and I was the director of the home health program that had the 75% nursing turnover. And um, just to give you some background, um, our home health agent uh, program serves about 700 patients um, in di all different homes across nine counties in North Carolina. We currently have 30 full-time nurses and 35 full-time therapists, and that include PTOT, speech therapy, and then we have home health aides. So we're currently caring for the same number of patients in the hospital with only about 75 full-time clinicians. Um, and um, at Duke, being part of the Duke system, we have extremely high acuity level patients. I would say I've been in home health a long time. These are the most acute patients I've ever seen in any other type of setting. They, most of these patients have had major surgeries or medical events and are coming home needing complex care. And um, our nurses are taking care of these patients and teaching them and their caregivers how to take care of themselves. And um, they're in a very uncontrolled environment doing that. So, um, and, and like Cooper said earlier, um, our nurses, um, they're out in the home, they're doing a procedure and they have a problem, say a peripheral stick and they can't get it. They don't have somebody down the hall that they can call to come help. So they have to be really highly skilled and know what they're doing. And also with home help, um, it, you know, it's very highly regulated. Uh, we have to prove everything we do in the home through our documentation. Um, and that documentation is required to be in compliance and to be able to bill for our services. And even more for home health, the assessment and the documentation that they do drives our payment. So um, it determines what we're paid. So I'm telling you all that just so you know why it's, you know, when we lose a home health nurse, it's, it's so hard to replace them. And, you know, then you've got, you know, you can't just bring somebody in and they're trained and, and able to go out and do home health and take care of the types of patients we have. So it was really, um, it, we were really in a critical situation. So um, when we first started our rapid cycle learning, we went to the people in the front lines. We went to the people doing the work to see what the current state was and tried to find out what the root cause was to our turnover. Um, and what we found was, is the clinicians are reporting burnout. They were, they said we had ineffective workflows, which was causing extra work and a lot of frustration. They were disengaged. They reported that they weren't getting the orientation and training that they needed to be successful. And they felt like we as leaders weren't asking for their feedback and, 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 and that we didn't care what was going on and, and what they were experiencing and that we didn't provide the support that they needed. So, next slide. 
So as I mentioned earlier, home health requires a lot of documentation uh, by the clinicians. And the clinicians expressed that the documentation and approval workflows just weren't working. Uh, they share they shared that they felt like they were having to repeat things and documentation. And then the QA approval process was resulting in a lot of back and forth and a lot of confusion and just creating a lot of extra work and time. And then they said that because of that, they were having to spend more time working at home in the evenings and working on the weekends, and it was impacting their work-life balance. And this was leading them to become very much frustrated, and they felt that we as leaders didn't uh, think their time mattered or didn't care. And so that's why they were leaving, one of the reasons they were leaving. So we recognized that we had to move from being, you know, change the way we lead. And we had to move from being transactional leaders to servant leaders. And we really needed to step out of our comfort, comfort zone and begin taking some risk. Uh, first thing we had to do was build open and trusting relationships with our team members. And to do that, we had to listen to them and really hear what they were saying and not try to make excuses or defend why things were what they were. We had to, to hear what they were saying and let them know that we wanted to hear what they were saying. One thing, too, you know, we needed to have managers that really were able to build connections individually with team members. That's so important. And, um, and I say I have the best managers in the world here, and, and I believe it. <laughs> and, um, and so it was them learning how they could build those connections and build that trust. Um, we had to build a culture of inclusiveness and consensus. And then we had to find ways to empower and motivate our team and really let them know that we really did want to hear what they were saying and we really did care what they were saying. One of the ways we did that was focusing on patient staff, staff and caregiver well-being and safety. And um, through our huddles, too, that really helped us to feel some connections there, too. Next. Go to the next slide. So um, we had to shift from being the doer to the coach as leaders. And for me, that was really hard. You know, as a leader, I always felt like I was the one that had to fix all the problems, have all the answers, have all the solutions. And I think sometimes leaders feel that burden. But by shifting to being the coach and recognizing that I'm not the one doing the work on the front lines, and I really am not the one that knows what needs to happen to fix those problems and really empowering the people at the front lines to get involved and find those solutions is um, what we had to do. So we had to include in all that we did uh, members from the front lines. And as you know, our clinicians are all dispersed out doing work everywhere, which is kind of hard. You can't pull everybody into a building. So we we had to, you know, some, you know, take them out of the field some to get involved in some of the work groups. But it was worth it, and and that's you know without them we couldn't come up with the right solutions. And as um, you know, we had to get them to you know work through the problems and come up with the target conditions. And then we just had to do a better job listening and acknowledging what they were saying and providing that support and encouragement. Get to the next one, Janet. If I may add to yeah. this, there's also often made the argument, well we don't have time to pull people out. We can't afford to pull people out. And I think it's 
important then to lay that concern down next to that hidden P&L of 20 some million dollars. And the question then becomes, is there anything in the world we can afford to do other than pull people out? How do we continue to bear the weight of this expense? We're going to have to stop doing what we're doing and, and, and course correct. So we really had to start living the culture of real-time problem solving where frontline team members are empowered to problem solve. And we as leaders, service coaches, and then leaders at all levels support rapid improvement and um, and uh, provide a clear path of escalation in real-time problem solving. You can go to the next slide, Jill. Just keep clicking <laughs> Okay, so um, so then we had to figure out how we could um, get everybody involved when they're so remote. And like I said, we couldn't bring them all into the office because they're, you know, some of them are, you know, two hours away. Um, so we had to find different ways to get their involvement and get uh, them involved in the solution. So one thing we did is we went out to them, you know, the managers. And everybody went out and made visits with them in the home to see what they're experiencing. And in those visits and in those conversations, you used humble inquiry to really elicit feedback and really identify what the current conditions were. We also uh, you know, used technology. Technology um, has really helped us to connect and communicate better. Um, and one of the things we do is we have, um, we, you know, Cooper alluded to tiered huddles. So we um, do a tiered huddle system here. Um, every day at 8.15, we have a uh, uh, our tier one clinician huddle, and all of our clinicians join that. And it's we, do, we utilize Zoom for that, but you can use other things like WebEx. We actually started with WebEx and went to Zoom. Zoom seems to work better for us. And then, uh, but some, you can also use Microsoft Teams. But so, it's a way that everybody can join and during those uh, clinic our first tier one huddle, it gives clinicians the opportunity to share any risk risk for patients or harm for patients or employees any risk. And then they can identify any problems that need problem solving. And those things we can so it might be just uh, just do it and we fix it right there on that huddle or maybe it needs to be escalated up to a tier two or even to our tier three director level, or even to the health system. So we have that escalation uh, that can be done right there throughout that day. And so um, those tiered huddles really helped improve that connection and that, you know, that people, we were listening and we had to prove that we were listening and, and addressing those issues. Um, other technology, uh, we use Microsoft Teams also to um, for our communication and to be able to communicate with each other and share things that has really helped us to uh, stay more connected. Um, but those frontline huddles also gave us an opportunity to celebrate each other too, for managers to celebrate clinicians that were going above and beyond, for, for people to celebrate each other and their teams. And um, also for managers you know, to celebrate people. So it, it's one of the best things of my day is to get on that huddle um, and hear people celebrate each other and recognize each other for what they're doing. 
and it makes them feel like they belong and are part of something. Our care team is our managers, like I said, and things are escalated to us and we meet and then we, if we need to, we escalate those things up. And from that, we uh, determine if there's uh, improvement activities that need to be done and we do work groups. We have a work group set work group every week on Wednesday mornings where we were working on a problem. And um, so, and the clinicians are involved in those work groups. So, and come up with what we're going to work on. Next slide. So, um, when we first explored our current state um, related to our turnover, we quickly identified we had a lot of problems and issues contributing to the turnover. Um, and um, so we, we we had to look and see what those problems were. So we did journey mapping and we mapped everything that our whole process from the time we got a patient to the time we build and everything in between and determined what the current state was and what the ideal state was. And then we came up with a long list of priorities to get us to that ideal state. And um, it was, like I said, it was a pretty long list. And we had 75% turnover. We didn't have time to spend a year on each problem. We had to move really quick and we had to be able to take risk and be willing to fail and learn from our failures. So rapid cycle learning gave us the ability to quickly test improvements and evaluate their impact. It encourages continuous improvement and it provides us the timely, timely information that we needed to make decisions and be nimble. Um, we um, we prioritized our list and we did PDCAs on the, the problems that were identified. And we did um, two-week sprints. And actually, Mike helped us with that as we started that out. So we identified the problems we were going to work on that two weeks, you know, form work groups, pull them together. Two weeks, we met again, determined what our progress was, what we put in place. And then if we were able, we'd add something else. And we worked through all those problems with the goal of getting to the ideal state. And through all of this, we were we were doing work groups and we had to have people that were involved in doing the work in those work groups um, doing that work. Get to the next. So um, we um we're able to redesign our workflows to uh, towards achieving ideal state. And we did reduce the waste, a lot of wasteful activities related to our documentation. One thing that through rapid cycle learning, we also did is we changed our orientation uh, process because that was something that the uh, people said we needed to do a better job at. And with that, we went from a 10 week orientation to a 20-week orientation for our nurses. And that's a pretty major investment in our nurses to do a 20-week orientation, but they, that's what they said they needed to be successful with the types of patients we had. And it was well worth it in the long run because you know, we didn't burn them out and send them away you know, after their first 30 days and they were prepared uh, to do the job and felt like they were supported. We also did uh, some work on our preceptor learning and training. We did standard work for our preceptors. And we also developed an extended preceptor program 
This is all through work groups that everybody was involved in. And our extended preceptor program was where clinicians get through orientation and then they're still struggling. You know, they just need more support. So they would be on the extended preceptor program where they had a preceptor that was continuing to work with them and help them be successful. We also did surveys with our um, staff to find out how we can improve our culture and our work environment. And um, it's pretty tough hearing some of the things that you get those surveys, but you know what? It's what we needed to hear. And through those surveys, um, we did more work groups and we worked on our workload and productivity and we made, made modifications to our standards for workload and productivity to make sure people had work-life balance. And then we did lots of improvements in the way that we communicated as a team. So, next slide. Janet, if I can join in on this, I, I think it's important to look at this and understand how much work went into this. This is one slide, but it represents an enormous amount of work that people from the front line, people that are connected to the front line did. It's not simply, okay, we're going to have a virtual meeting every morning and our problems are going to go away. Now, yes, having a structured visual management system, having a structured huddle system was part of the lean implementations that were put in place, but it was breaking down these workflows, understanding the way we treated our people and managed our people and heard from our people. That was where the great amount of work went on. We can all set Zooms up. We can set up a Zoom for everybody tomorrow morning, but it won't accomplish what's captured on this slide. And I just, I want to, emphasize the amount of work that it took to, to make these six bullet points relevant. There was a lot of work. And it wasn't, it, I mean, it was everybody. Like uh, it was the, it was the nurses, it was the therapist, it was our schedulers, it was our referral department, it was our managers. It's all working together through this. So to be successful, you know, with rapid cycle learning, we have to have leader buy-in and support. And we had that. We had it with uh, the leadership with uh, Cooper and Lisa. They supported us through this. And um, we supported our team's activities. They brought improvement activities that the work groups brought forward. We had to support them and, and work to implement those things. Um, you also have to keep track of your improvement activities, progress, and results. Um, so that you don't lose your momentum and um, and that you know what's going on through that whole process when you have so many things um, going on at one time. Again, the engagement from all staff levels, I think I can't say that enough. Um, and then um, the information that we collected and we had to analyze that and evaluate our improvement activities so that we could quickly pivot and make changes because something we might think the group work group might think it's going to work but then once we collect the data it may not we may have to change and do something different you have to use uh, rapid cycle learning as a catalyst for continual change so once you start it you get excited about it and you have to keep that excitement going and you you know, it's not, it's, we didn't just do this and it's over. It's a continual process. This is still going on. Um, and um, another thing that was really important, this is something Mike that kept kept saying, got to make sure people know what's going on. You got to tell them what you're doing. 
um, if you really want to change the culture and them to know that we're trying, you know, we're, we're fixing things. And so we did. We at huddles at least once or twice a week. We let them know what was going on, what activities we had going on, what work groups, what the progress was. What, and then at our staff meetings, we would put up our problem statement. We would go through what had been done already, what was in progress, and what was coming next. So they knew what was going on. And also just to, you know, to build that excitement that we really were trying to um, make the right changes to make their um, work environment and culture and uh, work life balance better. So. so the impact. So we um, actually did have our improved workflows and we continue to work on those. Uh, we did eliminate a lot of wasteful activities. Uh, we have a lot less frustration, not just from the people at the front lines, but the managers, the schedulers, the full department, our QAA review team. Um, so all of those uh, frustrations are much better than where they were. And we do have an improved work culture and environment. And we have very highly trained clinicians. Some of the best nurses I've ever worked with in home health. Um, they, um, they, I put on beside anybody, um, in home health or in the hospital, some of the skills because of the types of patients that they take care of. And, um, so, so that's what, and because of that, we have great, our outcomes are continuing to improve our, uh, acute care hospitalization, our, you know, patient outcomes are improving as a result of that and our teamwork. Um, we, um, you know, and it's a continual process. We continue to work on it. So, and we did decrease our turnover. So, next slide. So, 75% in 2020 in June. In June of 2021, our turnover for our nurses was 19.73%. And my last report for turnover for our nurse, our RNs, was at 12%. So uh, we have maintained that and continue to work on it. And um, it's really important to us. Um, and it's a continual process. So. Janet, I think it's critical to understand it. You know, you, you can use almost, you can use an intervention quickly to make that number drop. The question is, how do you make that number drop? And then stay down or in this situation, go down even further. Meanwhile, the financial performance has improved. More relevantly, the quality metrics regarding the care of our patients have improved. The referral source satisfaction has improved. It's very difficult to look at any of these as anything other than symptoms. And we say, well, again, outcomes are a symptom, positive or negative. They're not, they're a symptom of the, of the people and processes and structure that are underneath them. And so these are in alignment, and what we have is really incredible, sustainable, and continually improving progress. Um, I just getting a number one time is one thing; keeping it up and and making it better each iteration is a totally different outcome, and one that is run counter to what we've seen painfully in the industry, particularly during COVID. All right, 
Well, Cooper and Janet, thank you for sharing what you did and for sharing those great results. We've got um, good time here for the Q&A session. So thank you uh, again to the both of you for presenting. If you can forward that next slide, and I am also going to bring Mike Bradkey back on video. Um, so you can see everyone's email addresses here if you have any sort of follow-up questions. Um, I invite you to go uh, to valuecapturellc.com again if you want to um, download uh, ebooks, white papers, videos. We have blog posts. We have a podcast. We have a lot of free content to share. And the follow-up email about today's webinar is going to include um, some previous resources related to the story here at Duke, uh, a white paper and uh, a webinar that Cooper presented uh, a year ago. Um, so we will send you links to all of that. Um, as, as questions are, are coming in and to give Cooper and Janet um, a chance to take a, a, a quick break, Mike, let me in, invite you in with a real open-ended question around, you know, what observations you would want to share from your perspective as, as an outside coach what did you see? What did you learn um, through this whole improvement process? Yeah, thanks, Mark. And it was great to uh, just hear this awesome story from Cooper and Janet and the whole team. Uh, a couple of things that pop out to me. Um, one, in solving a complex problem like turnover, that the leadership team at Duke Home Care and Hospice started with inwardly looking at themselves. That, that part wasn't all that much fun, Mike. I got to be honest. <laughs> it, it rarely is. It, <laughs> it rarely is, yet really important to look at uh, in understanding the problem of turnover. You know, there are things like the processes relating to orientation, to workflows, to documentation. But the humility to really look at what are we doing or what are we not doing that's contributing to this problem. So, so I, th I thought that was a, a critical but awesome place to start, um, as well as just the, you know, you could hear through uh, their sharing how they were going through the problem-solving process of understanding the impact of why this problem went right now. What do we know about the current condition? We wanted what better looks like. Our gaps included things that were both about us as leaders, as well as about our processes and practices from the point in which a new person comes walking through our door. Um, and just that willingness to, to learn through experimentation and focusing in on, okay, we, we understand this to be a problem. Um, over the next two weeks, what are we trying to achieve and what are we going to try uh, to make this better and how are we gonna measure our success? was really important in getting to this, okay, let's try, let's, we may fail, but we're gonna learn tremendously from it and we're gonna adjust and it's gonna, uh, you know, keep that cycle going versus getting paralyzed in a conference room, just thinking of all the possibilities, but not really getting anywhere. So, so lots of things to applaud this team about. It was just awesome. I think there's a fundamental shift. Thanks for saying that, Mike, but there has to be a shift in the way we think about work. We, we're, we're I will criticize healthcare in particular that we're overly risk adverse to change. Mm -hmm. And so we've become more afraid of doing something wrong than we are of failing to get something right. And so there's this idea that, well, well, what if we try it and it doesn't work? 
well, what if we do nothing and we stick with what we have? Mm-hmm. And we're not being, going back to that Stockdale paradox, we're not looking at the brutal reality of our current situation. And because of that, we're not recognizing the compelling nature of the need for change. And it's too easy to say, well, yeah, but but we know what we we know what we have right now. Okay, but is it something we want to keep? Mm-hmm. What's it going to take to motivate us to change? 2,500 patients, not enough. If it was 3,000, would that be compelling? I, I don't know what the number is, but it's lower than 2,500 for me. So we have a number of questions here. One is, I guess, stepping back and looking a little bit at the bigger picture. Are you implementing similar efforts for the remainder of the Duke Health Enterprise? Specifically, are you doing something for the inpatient nurses? So maybe another way of framing the question is about sharing what you've done and the lessons to other entities. So there's two elements of that that come to mind. One is Duke as a whole began to look at lean principles across the system. And this was a system-wide or enterprise-wide initiative. The challenge came is that health systems tend to be very good at running care that happens in boxes. Ambulatory care centers, clinics, urgent care centers, obviously hospitals. But there was a little trepidation about, so what do we do with all of these home care folks? Um, health systems struggle with understanding and engaging with home-based care. And I don't want to speak for all health systems, but I, I don't think that that's an unfair statement to say that in general, they struggle with the dispersed nature of care and the differences in the workforce. So there wasn't system-wide effort to make changes. And we were part of that, though we had to make significant adaptations to the concepts so that they could be applied in home-based care. The next piece is the successes we had here, like successes elsewhere in the system, we did share. We have gone forward internally to share. And then we've also gone, and I mean, Janet has presented at the Catalysis Conference and here at the association, the statewide association um, meetings. So we've wanted to share those, not just inside the system, but across the board, and people say, well, does that mean you're helping your competitors get better? Yeah, actually, it does, uh, with the idea that maybe all patients will get better access to care. And I don't think that's a lose pro- losing proposition for any of us. Yeah, I don't know if I covered that sufficiently or not. That was That's great. Yes, definitely. Okay. Let's see. You, you, talk, you both talked about, um, or you talked about ideas that were being brought forward by staff from the huddles and in other ways. Do you, do you have some examples of either what some of those first ideas were or some recent ones that come to mind? Were people mostly bringing up safety ideas or was it broader than that? You know, we've had all kinds of things. Um, you know, when we first started this, it was a lot about the documentation and the workflows and, you know, things, their productivity and things that impacted their work-life balance. But they also brought up things like communication. They brought up risk, safety risk, you know, the safety dog, dog bites. That was a big thing we did a work group on, safety with dogs and how we handle that. Um, That's just one off the top of my head right now. And, And one thing I did, too, is to make sure people, you know, people 
feel comfortable sharing things different ways. You know, some people feel comfortable speaking up at a tier one huddle and sharing a concern or an idea or a problem. And some people don't. So I do a, I have like a link where it's a, it's a cross-check survey where people can go into it anytime, provide feedback and suggestions. And we monitor those and we're very transparent with those and we share them at our, uh, uh, at our um, huddles. And if there's something there that we need to do a work group from, we do. One thing we started working on, which has been very interesting, is our work, our holiday PTO approval. That's a big dissatisfier for some people, and people express that. So we have a work group going on that now. So we really have to listen to what is important to them. You know, of course, safety is always important, but other things that are important to them, you know, we have to listen to those, and, and we and we problem solve on them and involve them. You know, when you start telling people that they're part of the problem-solving process and create a culture that's open to hearing problems, you start hearing problems. Mm-hmm. And people are like, well, I, I'm, you're going to be overwhelmed with them. Yeah, actually, that may be true. <laughs> you you may, you, there were times it felt overwhelming. At least to me, it did. I won't speak for Janet, but there were times that it felt overwhelming the amount of feedback we got from our staff, what an incredible opportunity to hear from them, to understand what they've been carrying with them and to start solving that and solving it with them, not solving it for them. And that really is part of that cultural shift that Janet talked about of going from the people who knew all the answers to rather the folks that were trying to help the people who are doing the work solve the problems. And you know, how many times have we sat in meetings going, well, we need to figure out how to get staff buy-in to our idea. Right. You don't ever have to get staff buy-in to somebody else's. When I mean, it's their idea, they're already bought in. Yeah. Um, you know, it's usually when I have a lousy idea is when I'm having to get somebody to buy into it. And I'm great at lousy ideas. Mike can attest. <laughs> you, you, you've talked... So, like, you know, lousy ideas or quote unquote failures, you, you know, you I appreciate the articulation of, you know, the PDSA cycles and trying things and, and, and having that sense of urgency, but coming back to check and see or study and adjust. Um, can, can you think of is an example you can think of where you may have framed it as quote unquote learning from failure, which is something that you tried that you studied and adjusted and made better, even if it wasn't a failure? Um, well, when we were looking at some of our documentation things, uh, we made some changes with what we call our care plan or guidelines. And um, once we got that out there and started, we did some survey. You know, when we did different things, we do surveys and get input from people. And we got some input that it really wasn't making a, what we'd done hadn't really worked the way that we wanted it to. So we went back and re-looked at it and made some adjustments. That's something that that we had to adjust. And there were several things that we did that we still had to tweak and adjust and and go back and re-look at it. So that's that's one example. And if I can tie in, there's a there's a question that's been thrown in that I think ties into this, and it has to do with was there any data needed for rapid cycle process that you were unsure how to obtain? Um, and if so, how did you ad- adapt to that? 
I think sometimes, particularly in academic medical systems, we want to have some sort of double-blinded data. Sometimes the data is somebody being on a tier one going, this is awful and it's making my job suck. Well, it may not feel great to come that way and it didn't come out in a lovely column and we didn't send out a presentation, but that is actually a data point. Mm -hmm. Now, it doesn't mean we're going to make changes because one person in one meeting said something. But part of the feedback process that's built into this huddle and daily management or visual management system is feedback that's captured from our staff on a routine basis. And we don't necessarily run a survey. You can actually look at all this in a smart sheet, which is what we use to capture the data. And you realize, hey, this issue's happened five times in the last three months. And so you that process of capturing data visually gives us a new data stream that we've not had historically. That's not in a medical record review. That's not in a staff survey. Uh, that's not in a referral source survey, but is feedback from your frontline people on a routine basis. Um, we also talked to people when we looked at our orientation process, we got feedback that wasn't statistically relevant. It was just relevant that things didn't work and we needed to make changes. You certainly don't want to repeat those failures so many times that you get to statistical relevance. Sometimes you want to move more quickly and not wait until you have a body of data telling you what you're already hearing from your people. And so that's that rapid cycle feedback loop um, that we participated in. And was it publishable data? No, it was actionable data. And I'll, I'll add one, one more thought to that. So around the aspect of rapid experimentation, uh, you know, sometimes at a, at a work group or at a huddle, uh, you know, what we experience is people coming up with ideas and other folks saying, well, that's not going to work. You know, that's not going to work. You know, how many times have we heard that as leaders? Well, that's not going to work. Well, really, when you have an experimenting mindset, you know, it changes your response to, well, I know it's not going to work either. Um, what I don't know is why it's not going to work. And uh, what I don't know is what do we need to do to adjust to make it work? Once it doesn't, so it really creates a freeing mentality of it's not about pass fail. Uh, when when you're looking at rapid cycle experimentation, it's about what are we going to learn mm -hmm. through each iteration. There's a certain self protection in saying something's not going to work because there's an enormous amount of work that happens when we start experimenting. If we can shut it down earlier by predicting failure, we won't have to do it in the first place. I mean, I'm sorry, but there is an element of saying if we can just, no, that'll never, we can't do it. Or it seems like our memory of failures goes back forever. So, well, back in 2004, we tried this and it didn't work. All right, well, let's try something that, okay, maybe it didn't work during the Nixon administration. Let's try it now. <laughs> Things have changed a little bit. Are we able to recognize that our memory of how it was and how it failed? may not be 100% accurate or the circumstances have changed. Let's get some feedback from our staff. And if it's their idea, they're going to want this to work in the first place. Mm -hmm. Let's just enable it. There's another question, and I don't know if this was 
at some point a test of change, the 20 week orientation. So there's a question that came in here. How did you convince their phrase, not mine, the bean counters, apologies to the bean counters. How did you convince the bean counters that a 20 week orientation was worthwhile or to convince them to let you try it and see the impact? What, what was some of that process there? Well, I mean, I think that uh, by the time you could, when you justify what we were losing with having to rehire nurses and retrain nurses, that, you know, that was some of the justification. And, um, and, and you know, it's been well worth it. It's hard when you're a leader and like myself and, you know, you've got patients you're turning away and you've got a nurse that's been in orientation 12 weeks and you're like, gosh, I wish you'd get her out there. It's easy to want to do that, but it's proven that by giving them that orientation, they're going to stay. And so, and be happy, you know, be more successful and less frustrated. So in the long run, it's just well worth it. Even when sometimes you, it's hard, you know, but, 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 and and it is the graduated orientation. So they are still out. They do start making some visits before that 20 weeks, but they're not independent Mm -hmm. um, until the end of that 20 week period. Uh, I missed the question. I was busy counting beans, Janet. What was the uh, as I'm one of the bean counters, but I'll also say that Janet is the most fiscally sensitive clinical leader I've ever worked with in this business. She's tied to it as well. I think go back to really being aware of the brutality of the current state. And also, we, we get into this odd idea that we're going to get to make free choices. We, well, we want to do so-and-so, but we don't want it to cost any money. That, that's not healthcare management. That's Santa Claus wishing. <laughs> there's, no, there's no giant healthcare Santa Claus that we're going to go to with change, and it's going to be free. We have to understand what we think is going to be the return on those investments. And it's an investment in our staff to take orientations all the way up to 20 or 21 weeks. But let's be candid to Janet's point. What are we caught? What's it costing us when, when we're not doing this? Mm -hmm. We also have to be clear that the expectations here at Duke were very high for our home health folks. And Janet touched on something earlier that I'm afraid may get under recognized. The acuity of patients that we're seeing in these programs is disproportionate to what may be seen at many other organizations. And with that, we are going to have to invest in our people because that's the only thing we have. All Everybody's DME and everybody's medical supplies are basically the same. The only way we're ever going to differentiate ourselves is around the culture that we create and the human talent in which they that operates in that culture. And so how do we capture that talent and create a culture where they can flourish? And that's not going to be free. But failure is pretty expensive, too. Well, Cooper and Janet, you know, I appreciate both of you sharing your story here, the work that went into this of, of not asking Santa Claus to bring you lower turnover. And, <laughs> um, in a, in a, you know, that, 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 that the effort that went into culture change here, and like you said, helping leaders shift from, from being doers to being coaches, maybe just one last question to wrap up. You know that that culture change is difficult. What resources did you provide, or what coaching 
to those leaders to help them shift to being more of a servant leader, to shift from being a doer to a coach? Well, we had our coach, Mike, that helped us. <laughs> and uh, we, um, you know, we we had to start from the top, you know. Um, I, I did some, got some coaching on, you know, and I really have worked to try to provide coaching to my managers and to our uh, assistant managers to model that and help them to learn how to do it with their team members. And and it just has to become a, just a normal standard standard work for everybody and how you do that. That's just the, becomes a culture. And, um, and so that's. So maybe, Mike, your perspectives as the outside coach, and then I'll turn it to you, Cooper, for the last word on that before we wrap. Yeah, I, I would say just just both of my experience as a operational leader in this space, this type of space, as well as as being a support to other organizations is by role model. Uh, you know, if, if I'm the leader and I, I lead by asking questions as opposed to telling people what to do. Uh, that's contagious. Uh, that's contagious, uh, not only uh, by you know creating the conditions for other people to you know come up with the ideas uh, and to help recognize their own problems, uh, but also to just look internally about you know kind of what Janet was saying about developing people as leaders. We need to develop our other leaders, and uh, we're not going to do that by telling them what to do nearly as effectively are we are as by asking better questions. I think the process becomes a coach for all of us. To your point, Mike, once we get into this idea that there's this humble inquiry, this desire for nimbleness, this desire to understand things at a much deeper level, to not be easily satisfied by easily provided answers, that process itself becomes a coach, you know, and, and, and as Jan said, you got to trust that process. She's right. That process begins to coach all of us uh, because all of us are going to have moments when we become resistant to change or we skip to the point where we think we already understand the pro the solution. And yet in our heart, we know we really don't even understand the causes of the problem yet. So that process, it drives humility. Um, and, and if you have any kind of humor, hubris, it doesn't take long for the process to remind you of the need for humility. <laughs> Gently. Yes. All right. Well, thank you again, Cooper and Janet. Thank you, Mike, for joining us here for the Q&A. Thank you for modeling you know, these, these great behaviors around problem solving and, and leadership. And thank you for being willing to share your journey and your story with us here today. So I wanna thank everybody for uh, attending. Thank you for your questions. And uh, if you have any other questions for Janet or Cooper or for, for Mike or for myself, um, you can reach out to us via the email addresses that you see here on screen. So um, thank you again, everyone for attending. Uh, we are planning on doing more webinars in 2023. So we will send you notification about those and we we'll hope you'll join us. So I hope you'll go check out the past webinars that are available on our website and via the Value Capture YouTube channel. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Habitual Excellence presented by Value Capture. We hope you'll subscribe to the podcast and please also rate and review it in your favorite podcast directory or app. 
To learn more about value capture and how we can help your organization on this journey to habitual excellence, visit our website at www.valuecapturellc.com.